Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. She was fun. She was funky. She was sassy. There's never, never a time that I could really remember where we even had so much as any kind of a major argument. My wife to the bathtub and I think I had no clue really what I was doing, even though I was certified at it at one point. He's like, you get that kid a lawyer, innocent people get convicted in this country every day. Based on what I was hearing, I did not think it was a murder case. Well, I went and sat in his office and that's basically when he told me they're probably going to charge me with murder. He seemed honest and obviously innocent. This case, among all the hundreds of murder cases that I covered, is the one with the most unanswered questions. This is episode four. The battle begins. After his arrest, Ryan's first court hearing took place on Thursday, August 14th. And this is just three days after Sarah died. So this is moving quickly. At this point, Sarah's family was in deep mourning and they were very confused. Her closest relatives, when they arrested Ryan, believed that the police were making a mistake when they charged him with murder. Journalist Janice Hissel describes the tone at this first court appearance. Sarah's family, Ryan's family, were seated together for Ryan's initial appearance. And it was very clear that they were a united front supporting Ryan. Well, then when his bond ended up being set at a million dollars later, they again were in court together. And that, I believe, is where her brother made this very dramatic, in our heart of hearts, we don't believe that he did this. Please lower this million-dollar bond so he can get out and attend Sarah's memorial service. Mike, Sarah's brother, was kind of the family spokesman, and he said he believed that it was possible that his sister fell asleep in the tub because she had done this before. And he didn't think Ryan had a part in her death. And I think he called Ryan a hero for trying to save her. He also pleaded for a low bail, saying that they would be putting the funeral on hold so that Ryan could be there. But ultimately, the judge set bond at $1 million because the prosecutor stressed the seriousness of the charge. That's not surprising to me. I know it varies, but Megan, you're an expert in the bail area. But isn't it typically around a million for a first degree and then second degree murder bail you typically see around like two Hundred fifty to 500000 Yeah, this is totally in line with what I've seen before. I mean, sometimes you don't even get bail. Yeah, and usually when a judge considers bail, they're looking at the seriousness of the crime, prior criminal history, employment record, familial connections, and flight risk. Yeah, and potential dangerousness to the community yes. becomes, mm-hmm. and they usually measure that by criminal history and seriousness of the charge. Yep. But with a $1 million bond, it would mean that Ryan would have to produce $100,000 in cash to get out. I just quickly want to touch on bail for a minute here because we're going through a second bail reform movement now. So there's been a couple bail reform movements, but a number of states are moving right now to end cash bail. And the reason is, is because what we've seen is that a lot of low-level offenders are held for 
very long periods of time, longer than they would even serve for a conviction because they can't afford to get out of jail. Some people might say, well, $500 isn't that much. But yes, it is if you don't have $500 or if your family doesn't have it. So I'd just like to point out that we're one of the few countries left. Also, we use bail bondsmen. So in this case, they'll post that $1 million for you if you come up with 10% of it. But then after that, they keep that 10% as a payment for effectively what is a loan. So what this means is basically if you come up with a million dollars and you go on trial, you get that bail money back, that full million dollars. But for Ryan, he's losing $100,000 to pay the bail bondsman. So that's $100,000 he's out that he can't use for his legal defense, for expert witnesses, or even to pay his rent. And if you jump bail or you don't pay them back, they can hunt you down. Yeah, that's like Dog the Bounty yeah. Hunter, mm-hmm. which you, you've heard. Yes, of course. And, that, and that's really like atypical, just so you know. Yeah. I mean, most people aren't hunting down, but bail bondsmen single-handedly can choose who is free and who's not. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's a, an extremely perverse system. I don't believe I in cash bail at all. Nope. You should detain someone if they're a flight risk or if they're potentially dangerous, but you shouldn't be detaining people because they're unable to pay. So a lot of states are trying to get rid of this now. But back to Ryan's story. So Ryan at this point is still in prison trying to come up with the cash for bail. And then on August 15th, just a day after Ryan's first court appearance, the grand jury handed down an indictment for aggravated murder, meaning that Ryan was facing 20 years to life in prison. Just quickly for our listeners who don't understand the court system, Mm -hmm. in some cases, a prosecutor convenes a grand jury. So it's required in federal felony cases. And on the state level, some states require a grand jury for serious felony charges and or murder charges. When there's not a grand jury, then there's a preliminary hearing. Mm -hmm. Preliminary hearing. Basically, the purpose of both of these is to establish probable cause. In a preliminary hearing, a judge decides if there's enough evidence to move forward in a case and you have the defense present, which is different than a grand jury hearing. Right. A grand jury hearing, you only have the prosecution present. It's pretty much one-sided because you don't have the defense there. It's completely one-sided, which is why prosecution has the upper hand and they're able to get indictments. Absolutely. Yeah. And basically the grand jury, they investigate and determine whether a suspect should be charged with a crime based on only hearing the prosecution side. That's so correct. It's, it's a very interesting process. Some people think it's antiquated and not every state's now. Like you said, I, I, I like the preliminary hearing better where defense and prosecution present to a judge and the judge says, hey, you have enough to move forward or you don't. You got to drop the charges. So past that, Ryan's indicted. The prosecutor reported that Sarah died during a violent struggle, saying there was physical and circumstantial evidence. This was no accident. Which I'm sorry, but I don't I understand the circumstantial part. But what physical evidence I still don't understand. But this is, again, is it evidence or are you just construing? No, it's circumstantial. Well, the physical evidence they're going to say probably is on her, but also physical evidence at the scene that they discuss. A lot of people said, again, he was charged very quickly considering the circumstances, right? Not much of an investigation. Mike Allen, a former prosecutor in Hamilton County, said that he couldn't remember ever seeing a murder suspect charged within the same week of the victim's death. It was never publicly revealed why the charges happened so quickly, though. In court, they said he was a flight risk. He didn't have extreme means here. He also didn't have any prior criminal history. He had strong ties to society. He had a full-time job. I think he is the very opposite of a flight risk. Mm -hmm. At the same time, a second wave of publicity was coming around, and it was showing a very different picture of Ryan, and it was not flattering. They had me on a 
like a suicide watch. They said it was a standard thing they do for people with cases like mine. Um, so all I all I had was like a uh, some sort of I don't even know what you could call it turtle suit joke, just like a, a Kev. I don't know if it's I don't know what the heck it was, but just a suit. I didn't have any underwear, anything on, just that. I don't know if it, I guess it would have been an arraignment probably at that point. It might have been a bail hearing too. Yeah, it was a it was a video hearing. Again, I'm still trying to learn the process at that point because I had no idea really what any of that stuff really meant or how it all worked. He describes wearing what he calls a suicide vest. Wasn't there that picture in the media where like he had a sleeveless shirt on, he looked like a little rough around the edges? Yes. In jail too, Ryan was under suicide watch. He had no history, but the severity of the charge called for it. So he had all these restrictions, like he couldn't have bed sheets, he couldn't have pens, paper, books. He was only allowed out of his cell one hour at midnight to avoid contact with other inmates. I can't imagine going from, let's say, your normal life a week prior to all of a sudden, not just that you're in jail, but you're under this extreme label and these extreme conditions. And you're grieving the death of your wife. Well, some say he was grieving, some yep. say he wasn't. But yes, yep. if, if he was grieving, then absolutely. So as we see in a lot of cases, the media is now making him into this character. He's now Scary Ryan. He has tattoos, right? He's wearing the suicide vest. What's the point of the suicide vest? I mean, I think this was done just to make him look bad. To taint the jury pool and yeah. show that he's, quote, crazy or, you know, dangerous, maniacal, dangerous, yeah. threatening. His lawyer, uh, Charles Rickers, was infuriated by this. He believed it was definitely done to taint the jury pool. And now the public sentiment towards Ryan was really turning. Everyone close to Ryan was interrogated. One of his coworkers said that Braley was actually outright intimidating towards her and even insinuated that she was having an affair with Ryan. Yep, this is when they start looking for anything, right? I mean, she was significantly older than Ryan. I just want to point this out. And she was more like a mother figure to him. And I think that a couple of others recounted that they just felt intimidated by the investigators. Well, because they clearly don't have anything and they're looking for like that smoking gun, so to speak. So they're just talking to everyone that knows him, hoping to find something that can help legitimize the fact that they're holding Ryan. Is this tunnel vision, Amy? Yes, this is very much tunnel vision. I mean, it's clearly they're they're focusing in they have a particular theory, right? So this theory that Ryan killed Sarah, and this is guiding the evaluation of all the evidence and all the information they're gathering. And what they're doing with tunnel vision, you're ignoring all exculpatory information or evidence. So this is similar to what we know as confirmation bias, right? So you seek evidence in support of your pre-existing beliefs or your theory, and you ignore any evidence to the contrary. Isn't this how, I'm not saying in Ryan's case, but isn't this how a number of wrongful convictions happen because of these processes? Absolutely. And whether Ryan is innocent or guilty, it doesn't matter. You should not, your pre-existing beliefs should not be guiding the investigation. The evidence comes forward and you use that evidence, regardless of whether or not it confirms your theory, you take it into account. And that's clearly not what is happening here. They're like picking and choosing what to bring to the forefront. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree on that one. I'm seeing some real early problems in this investigation uh, that really concern me about the process going forward. On August 20th, 2008, this is after Ryan's in county jail for about a week. He appeared in Warren County Common Pleas Court, and this was for his arraignment following the grand jury indictment. So an arraignment is the first time an accused individual is brought before the court to actually hear the formal charges against them. 
Usually this is where bail is determined. Um, in some cases, the bail hearing is separate, but it happens around the time of the arraignment. And this is also where a plea is given. And it usually happens within 48 hours of arrest. Right. This was a little bit unique, I think, to understand because Ryan had appeared in court before because he was arrested before, but yes. now he's been officially charged. This was apparently a media circus and there was a packed courtroom. He was, however, no longer wearing the suicide vest and had traditional jail garb. He was probably shackled, right? He was absolutely shackled and handcuffed. But again, Mike Stewart, Sarah's brother, appeared and for a second time asked a magistrate judge who was sitting in for Judge Bronson that day to reduce Ryan's $1 million bail so that he could attend Sarah's upcoming funeral. Now, this was a magistrate who was sitting in for the judge, so he did not reduce the bail, but he did say you could ask Judge Bronson to reconsider. And two days later, that happened, and Judge Bronson reduced the bail amount to $400,000. And Ryan entered a not guilty plea. And so Ryan, I'm assuming, was able to make bail. He was, but not Immediately, okay. because even with the four hundred thousand, now how much do they have to come up with? Well, they have to come up with at least forty thousand mm -hmm. dollars, right? So on August twenty second, two thousand eight, Sarah's memorial service was held, and Ryan almost got out in time, but didn't quite make it. He got out like a couple hours too late, which is unfortunate. Dad posted the forty thousand with a bondsman money that he obviously does, you don't get back when you pay the bondsman. So Ryan didn't make it in time, unfortunately. But he wrote a eulogy. It was more like a love letter. And I, I it was read aloud during Sarah's service. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll give you a brief excerpt here. Sarah, I love you so much. And I'm going to live my life knowing you are still right here with me and watching. Even though I don't quite know what I'm going to do without you, I'm honored you chose to marry me and I will never disappoint you. You were the best thing to ever happen to me and I will never forget you. So Ryan's words were there, but he was not. <laughs> The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Ryan chose cremation for Sarah's body, and he says that they never spoke about these types of decisions, but because he would have preferred cremation for himself, and so he chose it for that reason, and because it was less expensive than a common burial. I'm sure that didn't look good for Ryan. Well, he regrets this decision, obviously, but it, it doesn't look good, I will say this, to kind of go the cheap route on your, you know. Also, I think cremation is probably... A decision that comes back to haunt him, but... You might say, though, if he was guilty, cremation is a great choice, right? Yep. Get rid of the evidence. However... If he's innocent, it's a very bad choice. Because now you can't test genetic material. You can't material. exhume the body. Can't and, exhume, yeah. yeah. Well, you still can do genetic testing. Yeah, because they have samples. But it's limited. Mm -hmm. you're, you're definitely limited. And again, a, a body is always helpful for these things. Also, I don't think it sounds good being concerned about costs, but he was also a guy who didn't have a lot of money no insurance to cover it. And he's facing a major criminal trial. And you know how much that costs. I mean, you can't judge people. If if his belief was that's how he wanted mm -hmm. his body to be disposed of after death. And yeah, it's his prerogative. I mean, you can't really judge that. I understand why people were looking at that maybe as being strange, but People have different beliefs. I, I think that we should not judge Ryan for choosing cremation for Sarah. 
Braley's investigation picked up a lot of steam after the county coroner made that preliminary ruling. Remember, just 12 hours after Sarah's death that she was the victim of a homicidal drowning. Ryan had admitted that there was no one else in the home that night and that there was no sign of a break-in. Therefore, as we discussed earlier, if it was homicide, there was only one person to look at, and that would be Ryan. This is where I think confirmation bias really sets in. He listened to the 911 call through a different lens, and now he starts questioning everything about it. Of course, like we talked about, if you have a theory, all of the evidence is going through a different lens. Yeah, but there was no, the investigation revealed there's no sign of financial issues. There's no signs of cheating, fighting. There's no life insurance. There's no substance abuse. There's no anger issues. There was no smoking gun. And they looked high and low. I mean, they interrogated his coworkers, accusing him of having an affair with them. So, I mean, they were really trying to find something here. This is problematic though, because they don't, there's no motive. We know that, the prosecution does not actually need to establish motive. They don't, but a jury likes to hear a story. I want to know. If mm-hmm. I'm on a jury, I need to know. I'm not on a jury, and I need to know right now. Without any of these issues, why is he killing Sarah? We'll have to see what the prosecution says. Yeah. It's a struggle for them, though. I think that's, I think that's their biggest uphill battle here, is what was the reason why if we can't find anything? So the prosecution is working on their case. They're trying to find motive. But the defense was also building their case and getting some pretty reputable experts to help prepare for trial. We talked about Werner Spitz last episode, and they were lining it up. They were preparing for a big fight. And there were some issues between the prosecution and the defense that caused the judge to delay the trial date, which was initially set for March 23rd, 2009. So this was still within the window for the speedy trial. It was about- But again, there is no hard and fast rule, right? That's just- No, there's not a hard and fast rule. It might be uh, the Ohio rule though. So you have to do it within eight months or 270 days, I think. But the case is allowed to be delayed past that if the court deems that the reason is valid and that the delay does not cause a prejudice to the defendant. Absolutely correct. There's always issues. I mean, there could be overcrowded court dockets. Witness availability, testing delays, illnesses, unforeseen circumstances such as a pandemic. Exactly. There's also a number of motions that are filed by both the defense Mm -hmm. and the prosecution. So the prosecution isn't really allowed as much to delay, but the defense can file a number of motions and motions take time. They have to, there's briefs the judge has to consider. And this is why we see cases like major murder cases where, you know, they don't happen until three years later on. There's a lot on the line. You want to make sure you get it right. Absolutely. But Ryan was not happy. He was out on bail. He had waited a couple months. Now he's got to wait another four months. And he wants to get this, get on with this and get on with his life. I was supposed to go to trial in November, but the prosecution delayed the trial. And that's why I didn't go to trial till like the end of March, early April 2009. I was out late August to late March. I was scared to death to do anything. So I would go to either my brother's house, my mom's house, my aunt and uncle. My Aunt Jackie and Uncle Kevin, and then my mom's good friend, Kim Lyle. Those were the only houses I would go to. I was still trying with what the money I had and everything I was trying to pay on the house because I figured I would pay on it and then try to sell it eventually after everything kind of went away. But my work put me on um, paid leave, um, and I was on paid leave at that time until something to do with taxpayers, taxpayer money. So um, Shirley, the executive director, she then that's at that point she put me on unpaid leave. Once that happened and I didn't have any money and, uh, or I couldn't afford to pay for the house and pay for, you know, help with legal fees and all that, um, I had to let it foreclose. While awaiting trial, he lived with his mother, 
Ryan at one point went back to get his belongings and whatnot, but he he basically was staying with his mom for the time that he was out. In total, Ryan spent over $500,000 between him, his mom, his dad, numerous family, friends, and supporters. Um, he sold his truck, Sarah's car. Their house was foreclosed on. After all of these legal costs, Ryan had to file as indigent, and this means essentially you have no more resources to pay for legal costs. You're essentially saying that you're broke. You have no more resources and no more money. And the state had to pay for medical experts at some point. But if you heard in that clip, he says, I was waiting for when this all went away. Mm -hmm. I think it still sounds like a little bit of denial. Like he's not really sure where he's at yet or like the gravity maybe. Or if he is in fact innocent, people have this false notion that the truth will come out. Yeah, that's very true. So it sounds like he's puts his faith in that. People do think that. They think they're going to go into a courtroom. uh, And that's true. Uh, Innocent people definitely think that. Or if he's guilty, he might just think he's smart enough to beat the system. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Okay. So he's out on bail. He's living with his mom. But there were also some developments with Sarah's family. You see, Ruth Ann, Sarah's mother, had visited Ryan at county jail early on and told Ryan that she knew he had nothing to do with Sarah's death. This is according to Ryan. And in late August 2008, Ryan had spoken with Mike uh, when he was out on bond. And remember, Mike is Sarah's brother. And Mike told him the family was 95% sure Ryan didn't do anything. Is that kind of weird? Yeah, I think so. I don't know what to make of that because it's a strange thing. I mean, I I guess a better way he could have just said, like, we're pretty sure you didn't do anything. (laughs) It's weird to put a percentage on it. It would be even strange to say we're pretty sure. Yeah. I'm not really sure. They also told Ryan that they thought Lieutenant Braley was a decent good guy. Yeah, because he's working closely with the family and has the family believe he's working for their best interest, which I'm sure he was, or we would hope he was. So Ryan felt like they were drifting away a little bit at that point, but it wasn't until October when the family held a private burial for Sarah's remains. Ryan said at that point he noticed they were pretty distant. That was at the private burial in October. I couldn't honestly even tell you the exact date. But yeah, that was the day when I really thought something had changed with him. All I can tell you is when it was it was Dr. Spitz who was still doing the autopsy at the time. Charlie pretty much told me at one point, he's like, don't seem like you're desperate, but, you know, just talk to him. When, when Dr. Spitz comes back with his determination, then that's when I'm going to call him in and talk to him. So, yeah, I had gotten together with their mom or grandma. I was seeing them here and there. It wasn't till that day on October that I felt like something was wrong. Something didn't feel right with the way they were acting. It was October 11th, just for some context here, which is approximately two months after Sarah died. A couple days later, the family met with Lieutenant Braley again. There's really no details about this, but... This pretty much ended their contact with Ryan. And around this time, Ryan's lawyer got notifications that Sarah's family would be testifying for the prosecution. Wow. You have to wonder what Braley said that turned the tables for them. Yeah. But I don't think this is a total shock either. Let me say that I, it seemed to be a surprise given their relationship with him and given that they had they were tight and they they believed him. But I think what happens during investigations, and this was not the first one, is that you ha- you don't have an explanation for Sarah's death. And so now the family's working with this investigator who is going hard at Ryan. And I'm sure he's telling them, look, this is a homicide. You may not want to believe it now, but we have the evidence. I'm telling you when we're going to trial. And I feel like their minds were swayed mm-hmm. by this influence. Yeah. I think it's very influential when you have police officers telling you you're wrong. 
And he was probably saying, you had a healthy 24-year-old daughter. How do you think she died? Yeah. So I don't think this was totally shocking. But I think there were people who were surprised, including Ryan and Sarah's good friend, Dana Kist. I wish I would know, like, what they did. They hear something that I didn't hear that makes them think that this could even be possible because nothing presented in the trials made me question it. So I don't know why or how they would change their minds um, on, on how they feel. And I don't, I don't know her brother's status on anything, to be honest. It's crazy to me and hurtful. And I, I feel like Sarah would be just so angry. But I wish I knew. I don't know. If you remember, Dana and her husband, Chris, were Ryan and Sarah's good friends. So I thought that was a powerful statement by Dana because she said Sarah would be so angry. Mm-hmm. And they've never wavered. Mm-hmm. They've supported Ryan the entire time. I mean, this is how many years later we're talking about. So what did change with Sarah's family? I, I think it was definitely the influence yeah. of investigators. Leading up to the trial, lead prosecutor Rachel Hutzel, who we discussed earlier, backed out of the case, stating that there were too many DAs on it already. Hmm. Interesting. You think she's losing confidence? I think that that was very fishy. Remember, she came out strong and she would want to leave the case if this is a strong case. And she was going up for judgeship, right? So maybe if she is not confident that it's a win, she doesn't want to be involved. If I had to guess, if I had to speculate, I would say that she didn't want to roll the dice on her future position. But just to be fair, it could also be that she had a lot of other things going on and there really were too many other DAs on the case. That could be too. You never know. All right. Anyway, so Hutzel backs out, but the trial was scheduled for spring of 2009. On March 23rd, 2009, in Judge Neil Bronson's courtroom in Lebanon, Ohio, Ryan Widmer's trial began. I mean, I couldn't tell you exactly the, the, the frenzy, but yeah, there was every time I went to the courthouse or obviously on that first day, I would have been walking in with uh, my mom, my dad, probably my brother, his wife, and yeah, I mean, I've, I'd already not completely accustomed, but become accustomed to seeing all the media around and whatnot. I mean, obviously, I was glad to get it started because I wanted this part to be over, but at the same time, I was scared to death just because, and I think I mentioned this before, Charlie telling me, when you go in there and you sit in that chair, people are going to automatically think you're guilty just because of where you're sitting. That kind of really resonated with me and made me, me just worry a lot. A defendant's appearance has so many meanings, yet it shouldn't have any, but he's right. So people noted that he looked like a blank slate, like no expression. His eyes looked sad. He was tired. If he looked happy, that would be problematic. Remember in Amanda Knox we talked about? In Amanda's case, if you remember, she was scrutinized because she seemed like she was too happy. Right, right, exactly. Smiling and showing affection. Well, people said that he looked like he did not have any emotions, and that was kind of how they judged him, but other people thought that he looked like an innocent guy. I remember when I first laid eyes on him, he didn't seem particularly creepy to me or anything like that. I didn't get a strange vibe like I have sometimes from some other homicide suspects. And I wasn't quite sure what to think because he looked kind of like just beaten up already is was my impression of him and i will also never forget that a photographer piped up and said to me you know what i kind of think that guy might be innocent and i wasn't used to photographers making statements like that because they usually just shoot the pictures and go on 
So that caught my attention. And I just said, well, really? Why? And the photographer said, well, you know, I'm used to seeing some of these perps, you know, the suspects or the perps walking in here with swagger, right? They just walk in with swagger and they have attitude kind of like, yeah, go ahead and take my picture. You know, I don't care. Or they actually like the attention. And this guy was more of a blank expression, kind of like a deer in headlights, that he didn't know what was really happening around him. That was the impression of the photographer. And when the more I thought about it, I kind of realized that that is my impression, too. We talked to his attorney, but I think some attorneys, maybe even Rickers, advised him not to show emotion. Yep. Which can work for you, can work against you. Yep. Again, it's all confirmation bias. It doesn't matter. I think you're right. Before trial begins, we have jury selection. And I guess Ryan was a little bit emotional at this point when they were doing voir dire. Amy, would you remind our listeners about the voir dire process? Voir dire is the process through which potential jurors are questioned by either the judge or sometimes a lawyer, sometimes both. And it's basically to see whether they are suitable for jury service in that particular case. So what they do is they inform the jurors of what the case is about and who the players are. So if you have a personal interest or a relationship with one, any of the players, meaning any of the witnesses or anyone involved at all, then usually you'll be dismissed. I was recently called for jury, and during the voir dire process, they listed the name of every investigator, mm -hmm. every witness, everyone. And they said, if you know or have heard of any of these people, please come forward. And then they tell you to leave if you have some sort of vested interest already. So both sides ask questions and they can excuse a juror for what they consider cause. Mm -hmm. Basically, if the juror says something that makes- Seem like they're biased. Yeah, that makes it seem like they'll be prejudicial towards either side, mm -hmm. then they can be removed for cause. And then, Megan, there's also preemptory challenges, Yep, right? That's when jurors can be removed without cause. In other words, the lawyers don't have to even give a reason. Yeah, they get a, they only get a limited number of those, but it's it's like a freebie on that one, right? Yep. All right. Well, when they finished with voir dire, they wound up with a jury of six men and six women. And opening arguments were delivered by both sides, and then jurors went home for the evening. So how did this go, right? We want to know, how did opening arguments, what did it reveal? After the opening statements, I mean, I felt like I didn't do anything wrong. I felt like everything was going good for me anyways, because I just never felt like there was anything they had, in my opinion, that should have made people be like, oh, wow, yeah, he's guilty. I mean, I felt, again, I felt comfortable about it, but I didn't never feel completely comfortable just because I knew in the back of my mind what could happen. Some people say that opening statements are one of the most critical aspects of the trial mm -hmm. because this is the first time, well, it's really the first impression that opposing sides have the opportunity to address the jury, and it really leaves a mark on the jury. So usually opening statements will outline facts of the case, really setting the stage for what they're going to talk about, laying out the court arguments and the general roadmap of the case. Absolutely. So Megan, I just want to read a little bit from the opening statements. Within the first few sentences, the prosecutor tells the jury that he wants to read a few pertinent parts of the indictment, which he calls the operable facts. Now, this isn't Rare. I've seen this done before. Sometimes, oftentimes, the whole indictment is read. So he just wanted to cherry pick certain points from the indictment. What he highlights is, quote, on or about the 11th day of August 2008 in the state of Ohio, County of Warren, the defendant, Ryan K. Widmer, did purposely and with prior calculation and design cause the death of another. 
The statement goes on to provide what you could say is a roadmap of the case, which is standard procedure for opening statements. Mm -hmm. And although mostly factual, there are points where things are taken a bit out of context and exaggerated. Overall, the statement was simple and straightforward, but I would say a bit theatrical. Okay. The defense's opening statements, on the other hand, in my opinion, were much more powerful and convincing. They started with an overview of Ryan's childhood and when he met Sarah and stated that the two started dating quickly and heavily fell in love with each other. Mm -hmm. The focus then became the facts of the day that Sarah died and the tragic incident through Ryan's eyes. And this makes sense, of course, because he's the defendant here. Right. I'd say the defense's opening statements does a really good job of providing an alternative narrative. And you know that jurors like to hear a story. They absolutely do. So I think that's important because we've seen opening statements fall flat when they fail to give an alternate story of what could have happened. And there was a focus on explaining important details that at first glance might have seemed inconsequential, but clearly gave us more information about the case. After opening statements, trial begins and the prosecution starts calling witnesses. And that happened on March 24th, 2009. The prosecution calls the dispatcher who answered Ryan's 911 call. The recording of the call was played. We've heard it, right? We, we took it apart. The dispatcher was asked about Ryan's demeanor and he said he was pretty calm. I disagree with this. That's also so subjective. What you consider calm might not be what I consider calm. Well, I'm sorry, but the dispatcher actually told Ryan to calm down at one point, if you recall. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that's a contradiction. On cross. I hope they said that on cross. Yeah. He also said that he thought Ryan sounded like he may have been blowing into the phone at some point to pretend like he was doing CPR. We talked about that when we broke down the call. We did talk about that when we broke down the call. So I don't think we need to cover that again. No. I mean, of course, it's a possibility, but do I think that was what was happening? Probably not. No, I think that's a ridiculous claim. Okay. Up next was Warren County's Sheriff Deputy Steve Bishop. You remember he was the first on scene? Mm-hmm. They displayed a photo of Sarah to confirm that she was the victim, and then they questioned him about the particulars. He testified that he touched Sarah, grabbing her arm to check her pulse, giving her a shake to see if she was responsive. Prosecutor Arnold asked whether Sarah's body had been repositioned. Janice Hissel on this issue. The position of Sarah's body seemed suspicious to the prosecution and to many people in the public because if she were taking a bath, Why would her head be at the end where the faucet is? That was one of the questions about the position of Sarah's body. The other thing was, why were there two blood stains on the floor? Now, blood comes out of a drowning victim's mouth. And the contention was that Sarah must have been about three feet closer to the bathroom in order to have a blood stain, not only by her mouth, but down by her pelvis. So originally, that would have been bloodstain number one created by her head being there and then her being moved. And there was a lot of contention about moving the body to possibly stage the scene was the prosecution's argument about what that evidence showed. And he just said, no, her body position didn't change from the time he arrived until she was loaded up onto the flatboard to be taken downstairs and put on a stretcher and put in the ambulance. During the initial phases of trying to do CPR right there on the bedroom floor, he said her body position did not move. That was his testimony. According to Ryan, Officer Bishop helped him and asked him to reposition Sarah's body. According to Bishop, he did not remember asking Ryan to reposition Sarah, which Ryan 
seriously disputes. I'm just wondering what would be the reason for Bishop to lie? Let's say he did, in fact, ask Ryan to move the body. Is that against protocol, maybe? Is that why he would say he didn't remember doing that? I'm not sure. Okay. Maybe he genuinely doesn't remember asking Ryan to reposition the body. That could mm-hmm. that could be the yeah. question. So this could be problematic for Ryan because if she was not moved, then this would suggest that Ryan moved Sarah's body to stage the scene. Exactly. So this is definitely a, a critical point. The defense also, when they cross-examined Bishop, just so you know, they did not revisit this issue of repositioning because there was nothing to be gained from another denial. Well, yeah, because it's a he said, she said, well, he said, he said, and who we, who are people going to believe? Yeah, and it was just highlighted mm-hmm. further, right? Yep, bring that it, makes don't sense. bring it too much attention, okay? Yep. Now, do you remember this clip from the 911 call? TJ, come on! TJ! Who was talking? Yeah, I mean, this was really a problem because CJ was barking over everything. He was barking at Bishop when he came upstairs. And this was also when Ryan recalls Bishop having him move Sarah's body. So the hope was that the audio from the 911 call might have recorded Bishop giving these instructions. I remember they tried to go to a sound technician to get rid of the dogs barking. But and they, they couldn't, couldn't do it. No, it's unfortunate. So I couldn't even decipher whose voice. Was that Ryan's voice? I think actually, no, I think it was Ryan's voice because um, he's yelling out CJ. Mm-hmm. But I, I couldn't decipher. What there could have also been an officer's voice, too. And maybe oh, yeah. that's why Ryan was telling CJ to stop barking. So well, that's could... definitely why. He was, oh, okay. I mean, it was definitely he's yelling because the officer's clearly entering the house. Mm-hmm. So Rickers focused on whether anything in the home looked disturbed or out of place. There's no signs of a struggle. Bishop also brought up the TV channel contradiction. Specifically, remember we talked about this issue that Ryan told him he was watching the Bengals game downstairs in the living room, but when officers turned the TV on, it was not on the right channel, and the game was on the upstairs television. I think that's a non-issue. I think this is a non-issue, too. So maybe he turned it on TV. Maybe Sarah turned on the TV. Maybe he just forgot this is, for me, nothing, indicative of nothing. Another officer who was on the scene testified that it looked like something had been wiped down, like a clumped up Lysol wipe was a little damp. Again, I mean, you know when there's signs of a serious cleanup. Mm -hmm. I don't think a Lysol wipe, go in my garbage right now. You know how many Lysol wipes you're going to find there? Yeah, I I don't don't think. James is alive and well right now. So, I mean, I don't think that's also supportive of anything. That means absolutely nothing. Okay, good. We're on the same page there. The prosecution piled on observations that seemed strange for a drowning scene. Uh, specifically that everything was dry. Sarah, Ryan, the bathroom floor, the bedroom floor, only Sarah's hair was damp, which fits the theory that Ryan removed her from the tub and everything had time to dry off before he called 911. Wasn't there also a discrepancy where a medic said that her hair was wet and then during testimony he said damp and there was they were going back and forth about yes. these definitions. Yes. Megan, I looked it up in Oxford, you know, Oxford definition. Yeah. Just because I want our listeners to really understand the subjective nature of this and how we can't sit here and argue over this because the definition of wet is covered or saturated with water or another liquid. Okay. The definition of damp. What? Slightly wet. <laughs> so, I mean, they spent a lot of time, if I recall breaking this down, but it's subjective. What's wet to me might be damp to you and vice versa. I I agree with that. I mean, I think every, everyone agreed that her hair was at least damp, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, 
I don't think that was the bigger issue. I think the, the, the bigger issue was probably around, let's say, pruning and how wet her body was, mm-hmm. too. So the prosecution elicited plenty of testimony from witnesses about pruning. So that was like another buzzword that was used a lot. The prosecution basically said that her unwrinkled toes and fingers implied that she wasn't soaking in the tub, as Ryan had said. I mean, there's also the issue with timing, though, because we don't know how long she was in the tub. Remember, she mm-hmm. told Ryan she was going up. She He said around 830. Mm-hmm. She could have read a book, watched some TV, fiddled with her nails, whatever. We don't know what time mm-hmm. she actually got in the water. She could have been in there for five minutes, 10 minutes or an hour. Have no idea. And everyone prunes, I would assume, at a different rate. We don't know if her hands were submerged in the water, her feet were submerged in the water. Because if you're taking a bath, you might have your hands outside. You might have your feet up. Yeah. There were a number of issues like we're talking about. So a lot of spectators actually thought the prosecution presented compelling evidence that the level of dryness was not consistent with Ryan's version of events. Ryan talks about some of these conflicting statements. First and foremost, they didn't really ask me ever like to give details about how everything like happened when I found it. And my attorney's tried to let everybody understand when I found her, I drained the water. Even though she was sitting you know, or laying in water, the first thing I did was drain the water. I don't know why I did what I, I just did what I did, you know. I think it gets lost because they try to assume, because I never clarified it on a 911 call, that I just pulled her out of the actual water. They don't take into account that it was already drained. And I think that adds to it where they just, they use that angle to try to be like, well, how is there no water? They also want to paint the picture that there was some sort of violent struggle that took place. But if that theory, like they say, were to exist, there should have been more evidence of water in different places. And I think that's where when people aren't telling the truth, especially a group of people, contradictions start coming up that tells you that somebody's making something up. You know, there are small things that happen within their testimony, the different people, the EMTs, uh, the police, and stuff that were first responders that contradicted themselves. One of them said at one point the defibrillator pads uh, would stick to her body. The reason that would happen is because there was moisture on her body. And within the same portion of their case, they tried to imply that I waited around to call 911. Well, that's the case. I mean, her body being hot to the touch clearly indicates she was in warm water. When I found her, I wasn't taking mental notes of this, this, and this, you know, and nor should they have been. They should have been there to save her life, and that's what I hope they were doing when they came to the house. And Charlie Rickers had some evidence that won some points during cross-examination. We caught one of their EMS people kind of in a lie. But one of the things in the trial was that they claimed that Sarah was dry. Her hair was damp, but her body was dry. And they, they pounded on that, saying that was a, would be impossible if you just got her out of the tub and called 911, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the EMS people who was testifying to that fact had been interviewed by a private detective that we had sent out. The EMS guy thought he was talking to somebody from the prosecutor's office, and he said that the hair was wet, which was a big deal, by the way, because the body would dry much faster. And when I reminded this EMS guy after on cross-examination, meaning after he had already testified for the state, he admitted 
that, yeah, the hair was wet, which I thought was good. So the defense is, you know, they're countering. They're countering these arguments. On day three, so this is day three of the trial, so we're still in the prosecution. Uh, the prosecution brings in Dr. Anissa Marie Doss, and she's a sleep expert from Ohio State University who spent several hours on the stand, basically shooting down the idea or the belief that Sarah could fall asleep in the tub. She said it would be virtually impossible for someone without the influence of drugs or alcohol or something external to fall asleep and just not wake up. The only thing they found in Sarah's system was basically caffeine. While the prosecution sleep expert cast serious doubt on Ryan's claim that Sarah fell asleep in the bathtub, the defense countered with the possibility that Sarah had a fatal epileptic seizure, and the prosecution's witness agreed it was possible. But we needed to know more, so we brought in our own expert, and much to our surprise, he disagreed with both the defense and the prosecution, and offered us another possibility for what may have happened to Sarah that night in the bathtub. Next time on Direct Appeal, we'll hear about the medical examiner's testimony as well as from sleep experts on the possibility of drowning in a bathtub. And the prosecution brings in their star witness. Direct Appeal Season 2 is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. Editing by Jose Alfonso. And special thanks to Janice Hissel, whose book Submerged was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing us at tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can also help us out by following or leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.